0: Welcome to Brandon Event. We are delighted to be joined by Samuel Kimbriel, and we are going to be talking about friendship and loneliness. Would you like to start with a real life case? I'd love to, this
1: will be fun. The situation that I want to describe is drawn from a Supreme Court judgment from the fifties. It relates to the question of having a society. The person in question here, Albert Tropp, was a member of the U.S. military during World War II. He was stationed in Morocco and for one day deserted. So he found the conditions intolerable. He left his post, tried to run away, and then decided after having done that for a day that he thought better of it. He went back uh, to his base and was court-martialed. Under initially a civil war statute, which was then updated in the early 40s in relation to World War II, the US claimed the right to declare someone who deserted stateless to strip them of citizenship. So then when Trapp went forward in the 50s after the war to apply for a passport, he was denied on the basis that he had been stripped of his citizenship. And then this uh, this escalated to the Supreme Court eventually. And the Supreme Court ruled, actually, this was the last time that the US used anything like the kind of long-term practice of banishment. For for its kind of pun its punishment system, and so the Supreme Court rules that uh, against the state in this case, and in for Trump, that in fact this punishment was not acceptable. I want to just pull out a couple of sentences from the judgment. This is the Chief Justice Warren writing. So there there may be involved no mis physical mistreatment, no primitive torture. That is in terms of how the Eighth Amendment the out that rules out cruel and unusual punishment works. However, in this case, declaring someone stateless, there is instead the total destruction of the individual's status in organized society. It is a form of punishment more primitive than torture, for it destroys the individual for the individual the political existence that was centuries in the development. The punishment strips the citizen of his status in the national and international political community. His very existence is at the sufferance of the country in which he happens to find himself, While any one country may accord him some rights, and presumably as long as he remained in that country, he would enjoy limited rights as an alien, no country need do so because he is stateless. So essentially what the court concludes is that the um, idea, and there's the paragraph I read is one kind of iteration of this, but there are a number of others throughout the judgment that really emphasize the idea that humans aren't necessarily social that the idea of humanity is tied up with being in a political community, and that that is such a kind of fundamental aspect of humanity that it would in fact be cruel and unusual to inflict a kind of revocation of that right of being in a society from that person. And what's interesting, right, is that the US is still a society with capital punishment. So traditionally in law If you take like a hierarchy of punishments, there's been a kind of quiet default sense that um, capital punishment death is the most severe. And then that banishment is very close in that chain, but still subsidiary to death as a primary thing. The Warren court almost seems to be reversing that order where it says we're still going to allow capital punishment in the society as a whole. However, we're not going to allow this idea of declaring someone stateless. So I just think philosophically, this is an incredibly pregnant example to test our intuitions around how important political society is, political community is to being a human being.
2: Wow, it's a fascinating case. So what bring what comes to mind is two questions. So the one is why do you think that being tied into society, or why do you think sociality is intrinsic to a human being? And if it was so bad to be excommunicated or banished from a society, Why is it that some people seem to seek this out? So you get hermits, Buddhist hermits, non-religious hermits that want to be removed from society. An interesting case is Stephen King. So Stephen King is a notorious hermit. He writes books that a lot of people read, but he really shies away from the public eye. He does have a Facebook account and a Twitter account, and he's become more verbose over the last decade or so. But for a long time, for decades, he wanted nothing to do with anyone. A- and he wouldn't appear at book signings. His publishers were driven mad by his, his reticence. So how can it be so bad that it's worse than death if some people want it? And those people don't seem to be as self-harming in doing so. And that's important. Of course, some people do want things that are bad for them. But it's, it seems like those people can be very happy. Hermits can be very happy. The rose of the world.
1: Yeah. So we'll, we'll try to de- develop my own position gradually over our conversation. I The thing that I want to say first is that my view is that the paradox between individuality and sociality is just incredibly intricate and fascinating, and that you can go wrong in lots of different directions. the The kind of view that whether I think very implicitly in this case, that the Warren court is wanting to Embraces something like Aristotle's view. So Aristotle famously says multiple things. He says, first of all, humans are intrinsically political animals, and that they are more gregarious than any of the other gregarious species that we know. So bees or ants, who have this very deeply intertwined social structure, he thinks humans are even more social than this, and that you can't understand them in that way. And then he backs this up with the claim that if you find a human being who, not by necessity, like if you get kicked out of the and you get lost in the woods or something, that's fine. That's that's totally understandable. But if you find someone who voluntarily wants to be totally seg- segregated from social community, that they're either a beast like below human nature or a God above it. And that kind of self-sufficiency is somehow like a real test of whether or not this is a fact a human being. So I don't, yeah, so I don't know, how do we feel about that? I'm inclined to think that even the hermit case is a person who does still have a social community. I think that there are ways in which there are implicit social things that are happening. Like the case you, you took of the Buddhist monk, there is like a long-term tradition that has developed for this person. They're still living somehow within the thought world of, of a of a community that has had thousands of years of history in this case. And then they're expressing that tradition in a particular way what it would be like for someone to totally sever themselves from the social community. I I think that's actually almost hard to even conceive what that would look like.
0: So if human beings are inherently social, it seems like they can express this in multiple ways. So some of it might be that you have work colleagues, you might engage in a democratic process with civil society organizations, maybe co-belligerents fighting the state. You could have romantic relationships and you could have friendships. And they all seem like they're social, but they seem like they have different characters. Are they are all obligatory? Are there different natures? Are there any of them that we think are more important than others? Are the rules different for how one ought to conduct themselves in these different frameworks?
1: Yeah. So I definitely don't think that they're all obligatory. I do think that, so yeah, so my position would be that there is something intrinsically social that you cannot get away from as a human being, but that the nature of the expression of that sociality can be very, can have like wildly different forms. And that, we both see that within our own society, the kinds of set of things. That's why even I think for me, the hermit case is okay. But we see wildly different kinds of expression of sociality. And then certainly across history, there are the ways in which humans end up expressing this is very diverse in all kinds of respects. Yeah, actually to take a quick thought experiment here, I think there is another way to test our intuitions. So imagine that you had a society in which all functions of human life were satisfied without other human beings. So- imagine that Sam Altman and his his employee set over at OpenAI eventually figure out a way to create this machine that is able to completely satisfy the basic material conditions of society and make it so that everyone is well-fed and has adequate shelter and maybe also like even various types of luxury that are kind of correspondent to our current consumer society, but that you never interact with another human being. How much is that actually Two, I guess two questions. One, is that actually going to be a society that has longevity to it? And two, is that a good society? And I think however you end up going on that case study, on that kind of thought experiment, tells you a lot about how much you think sociality is actually necessary for human life.
2: So I want to try and distinguish between two different senses of necessary here. So you might be talking about A human being is not a human being unless it has some sort of social structure around it. Okay, so you might be saying it's some sort of metaphysical necessity. So like in order to be called a human being, you would have had to have participated in some sort of social structure with other human beings. But then you seem to also talk about a different type of necessity, which is in order to be a happy human being or a fulfilled human being, you would need to have social social structures. I can agree with a second one, I can, to an extent. The hermit case for me is a problem for you. I mean, maybe you're saying, okay, in the hermit case, you are still within a social structure. But then I'm going to give you sci-fi hermits, right, who aren't in social structures. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Moon? I haven't, no.
1: Okay, so that's the case. Some As... of those sci-fi hermits in it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it, I,
2: it would be a bit of a spoiler if I explain the premise, but in Moon, there's a character who has never had any contact with another human being and won't for the rest of his life. And there are issues of loneliness and there are problems with his life, but he can live, it seems, a fulfilled life.
1: So, Wait, th- so, so in that case, is that your number two? So the, ful- yeah, the that's word the fulfillment there? Yeah.
2: yeah, that's a counterexample example to two. But in, in terms of the first claim, I'm not sure you've established that humans are only humans in context, in social context. Like, what do you mean by what do you mean by that? Do you mean that we'd have different DNA? Because that seems false. Like, it seems like if what makes you a human is your DNA, then you can have that even if there's no humans around. So, is what may, is part of human nature then sociality? And if you're lacking that, you're lacking that part of human nature. Interesting cases around feral. So humans that are born feral, so they never meet another human, they're abandoned in the wild and they grow up with wolves. Is that a human being? What's going on there?
1: Yeah. So I actually, I think this is a really good question and we may get into some discussion later. I'm pretty critical of Aristotle in certain points, but on this, I tend to think an Aristotelian framework helps you. So the general way that Aristotle tends to handle these kinds of things is to say, that you have two states that are tied together in an important way. So you have on the one hand, the basic conditions by which an entity in the world fits the definitional category of being X entity. And I think a good example here is like an acorn, like an oak seed. An oak seed. So what, it, what is it? It's a seed, but you can't actually properly define it without reference to what it can become so what it should become is the tree that of which it, it's a seed and both of the there is a paradoxical relationship here because of course it is already something in its initial state like what it happens to be and it's not it doesn't seem like it's just a part whole relationship either so it's not just a derivation from the tree from which it grew like it's fallen on the ground and now it does seem to have an in, independent existence but that's that independent existence is only referential or is important in important respects referential to the state that it should become. So I think that there, I think what I like about this framework is that it gives us, it's not overly simple. So it, it allows us to handle some competing intuitions here, which are quite significant. The competing intuitions I think are, yes, it is the case that you could have someone who's born in a feral situation. And actually I want to talk in a second about um, solitary confinement, which is really a striking case here also. So someone who is born without human social community, somehow raised in the wild, animals taking care of them, whatever. There are, we obviously do have real case studies like this. That I would want to both say that is still a person. Also, that the conditions by which that life can become come to like full fulfillment are importantly hampered. And so being able to handle both of those statements simultaneously feels to me like. One of the kind of conditions that I would want to, would, would want to be fulfilling
0: so if I understand the claim, it's that in order to meet your potential it is necessary to engage in the social so that necessary but then goes to both the metaphysical claim to be a fully functioning person and also the moral claim that it is a good thing. I have a couple of concerns. the one I suppose is in your AI case, let's assume that you are the last actual human being around and you've got AI and robots that cater for all of your needs but you also have an AI that has access to all of human history so you can speak to the AI you can engage in the simulator of the relationships you can imagine that the robots that are buzzing around are indistinguishable from human beings they're covered in latex they have at least the impression of the kinds of emotions that human beings have would you say would say the case that person could never be a fully developed human being or would you say the AI is human enough and you can have a relationship with those things. And maybe it's only a one-way traffic relationship, but the, you don't need the other parties to feed it back, to feel any of the stuff, to have emotions. You know, it at least seems like it's two-way traffic and that would be sufficient. Or would you say, no, like you you actually need the kind of being that could enjoy your company for it to be truly social and for you to meet the full development?
2: I'm, so I'm I have to work. just... I have to go button ahead, in please. as a sci-fi geek that this has been done as well <laughs> in sci-fi. So there's a great series called Raised by Wolves, which is about mother and father raising these embryos into full humans. And mother and father are a out there machines, but they're in human form. So that that's exactly the case, Mark, that you're discussing. And the series explores these issues really well. Sorry for the button. Go, go ahead, Samuel.
1: No, that that was great. It's a very welcome kind of example. So... I think that the way that I would put this is that the answer to that turns on the degree to which you think artificial life will be able to actually have life to it that is vaguely human. And I think that's a very complicated philosophy of mind question and one that I have a lot of views about, but would be interesting to to think about. I'll say we are already actually watching something like this. So there was a case, actually a very tragic case about a month and a half or two months ago of a man in Belgium who committed suicide after uh, interacting with an AI, with one of these chatbots, a generation maybe like from a year ago. And both his wife and his psychiatrist said, we don't think this person would have committed suicide if he had not been having this particular interaction. And the way that the interaction went, I think it unfolded over maybe three weeks or a month. And he's getting more and more obsessed with talking to this thing. And over the course of the interaction, in part because of some actual prompts that the, that the AI gives, he becomes convinced that if he commits suicide, then the AI will um, save the planet from climate change. And this is a kind of interaction, not only of the, I think, human, the things we're talking about, human capacity for sociality, but also desire for purpose, that sense of meaning, giving yourself to something that's meaningful. And it does seem like in this case, at least, the computer is able to intervene in those kinds of background desires and play a significant role on both the sociality side and the purpose side. So it's saying so that's me saying I am open to the idea that these capacities that we're talking about in human sociality do end up having a kind of activation that can be at least partially met in different types of interactions. And I would say that's true without technology. I grew up in the mountains. I grew up at 9,000 feet in Colorado. And I would say that a lot of my own set, intuitive set of understanding of the world and of these kinds of questions about what it means, what like what sociality means, were actually shaped by growing up in an environment where there are both like incredible natural beauty and also like animals that are actively hostile to your ongoing existence. And those things do also hit, I think, that whatever we're talking about, whatever Aristotle's talking about when he's talking about sociality, the like human capacity to be open to beings outside of yourself. I do think that there's always a way that this is not just a merely human to human story. It is also the case that the human to human interaction is a very important one.
2: I don't know if you've come across the swamp man thought experiment. Imagine lightning strikes strikes a swamp and and out of the swamp, the heat from the lightning and the molecules in the swamp just randomly out of that pops Swamp Man. And Swamp Man has all the properties of a person. So Swamp Man has the same mental states as, let's say, you, Samuel. So Swamp Man looks just like you. He he speaks just like you. He has identical memories to yours. You can have a conversation with him. What is going on there? Because on your view, he is not a full person. And yet he's behaving just like a full person, right? So he has no history. He's never interacted with another person from the moment that he pops into existence, but he pops into existence fully formed. Doesn't that seem logically possible? And if that is logically possible, then doesn't that show that it's at least logically possible to be fully formed as a human, as a person with no social interaction previously whatsoever.
1: Yeah. So I think my intuition diverges there, which is, I don't actually think that it's logically possible or yeah. So this gets into something complicated, but I tend to think with things like memory that the fabrication kind of case studies that we're talking about, like you've made someone feel as such such and such a thing are almost always too phenomenologically shallow. The experience that you can, of course, have memories that are partial or fragmentary or distorted in certain ways. I think that's very plausible. But to take things, to take instances of memory that I think are especially intense, so like falling in love or very powerful experiences from your childhood, those are, I think, very importantly existential experiences, not just informational experiences. It's not just that you, had a series of sensory inputs that you then encode somewhere in a memory bank. I think that the, the Davison case study like works fine in that case. Okay, there's a like whatever, an iterative structure that you're able to access certain bits of information and swamp man is able to pull those to the surface. I don't think that it works for I th- I think that if you pay attention phenomenologically to what the experience of falling in love the first time was like that is so overwhelming and existential like it gets to what it means to be you as existing in the world that the i don't i'm usually resistant to the idea that could be fabricated and so then if that's the case then it does i think mean that we are like very complexly layered beings where the there is like a background set of competencies or capabilities that we have and then those play out in like wildly contingent and uncertain ways and then hey Hey, Presto! Like when someone walks into the kitchen, and I start feeling anxious. Like, where does that come from? I don't know, but there, there is definitely like a history here that matters for then how I end up interacting with that person in in, in that instance. Okay, and that's
2: a very interesting response. So let's just take the example of love that you raised. Okay, so yeah. Swamp Man has all the memories of loving. I don't know if you married or not, but let's say you have a wife of loving your wife, right? And has all the memories of the wedding and the honeymoon and your life together, okay? And you're saying it's false to claim that Swamp Man does love your wife because in order for Swamp Man to love your wife, love doesn't just exist in the memory encodings, it exists in the actual experiences that you went through with your wife. So it wouldn't count. And it's just a simulacrum on a pat it's like a bad copy. Or it's, it's it's a very superficial copy of you, but it's not really it, that Swamp Man isn't really experiencing the relationships that you experience. And because of that, Swamp Man isn't fully formed, isn't a fully they, full
1: person. They, so that person may be able to watch it like the way that we watch a film. We can have vicarious experience of that kind. But so this ties into something that's sort a of broader philosophical concern that I have, which roughly maps onto Nagel's to Thomas Nagel's arguments about the view from nowhere. So I basically think that he's correct that there are certain ways in which human life is never buffered from the experience of being an entity in the world. Like you actually do happen to exist and that existence is very thickly textured in all kinds of ways. So it may well be right so the this creature from the swamp can rise up and have a, what I'm suggesting, like a cinematic experience of all of these kinds of things, but it's only after that creature starts like wandering around the world and having experience of their own that they end up taking on something like the kind of characteristics that we're discussing that we identify with a full and rich human life. And so, so then the last thing that I would say there is, it's not just that there's something about falling in love that you have to go through. And there's like a there's like a weak claim versus a strong claim, and I want to make the stronger claim. The stronger claim is that that the act of placing yourself on the line in the face of something like this, like when you go and you propose to someone, you can't do that in a detached fashion. Like you are actually taking a genuine risk. This person could say, you. it's a very significant thing. You love this person. You want them to say yes, and they may well say no. There isn't a way to do that in a fashion that is happening from a laboratory. Like you can't watch that experience and also do that experience and have it be the same, right? These are, insepar- these are
0: incompatible. So we got to run a really interesting real life experiment for a couple of years, which is that uh, instead of having children get to spend time with each other in a, in a big high school, we said uh, you'll get to stay at home and your interactions with other people will be entirely digital. You'll have your classrooms over Zoom. Your friends will be over, over Telegram or WhatsApp. And it seemed to have some quite strong negative repercussions in that people felt very isolated, very depressed. And it seems like there's something to be said for real-life interaction with other people and that the mere simulacrum of interaction could be quite devastating. Do you think that we should take that kind of claim seriously, that social isolation could be bad not just for those individuals but for society at large?
1: Yeah, I definitely do. And actually probably like my published work is more on this topic than it is on the the kind of conceptual stuff that we've been discussing so far. So just a few things that are happening here. So the U.S. Surgeon General's office just put out an advisory, which is a kind of like major paper that they think everyone in the entire health sector in the U.S. certainly, but also the world should be paying attention to this topic as like a major feature for the future. And it's the advisory is saying that we have, put so right, this happened two weeks ago. So post-COVID post, whatever post means in this case, but in the lingering days of COVID, that there is an epidemic of loneliness and social lack of social connection, and that it's at such severe proportions that the US health system should be very actively poised to try to deal with this pandemic. epidemic. uses the word epidemic very clearly. So that's one. The WHO is also setting up commission specifically to be studying this issue of loneliness and social isolation. The UK was actually very early in this. In 2015, I think the end of 2015, maybe 2016, they set up a minister for loneliness who was specifically targeting this kinds of questions, which sounds like something out of Harry Potter, I'd like to say, but it's actually a real government position in the UK. And Japan has also followed suit with that. There's a very famous argument from Hannah Arendt at the end of Origins of Totalitarianism that the idea of social disembedding, of not having a context for belonging that has longevity to it, is also one of the principal conditions for authoritarianism and in actually a t- totalitarianism so a further iteration and she thinks she traces this out very carefully historically that she thinks that the specific conditions that gave rise to nazism and to the kind of soviet style communism that she witnessed went directly through this question of loneliness there is um, obviously a large debate about that and people have different views but i tend to think that it's roughly right that when you pay, so if the kind of framework that I've been defending conceptually is correct, that there's something about the embryonic state of being a human that is directly tied to these questions of loneliness and social isolation that you want, like in the, like as with the seed growing into the oak tree, that you want to be growing into a particular direction. And then suddenly something about belonging or love, or being loved is thwarted for you, that does lead to a kind of deep unhappiness and potential despair that then can have all kinds of other repercussions as you think at a societal level.
2: So if loneliness is really important, if that's going to have huge political consequences and big consequences for our nature as a fully formed person, I think it's important that we define it. So it's quite hard to do. So the example Mark gave, was an example not of total isolation. So these kids still had contact with other children. They just weren't, in, they weren't having that contact in person. So is a condition for loneliness to be alleviated that you have other people around you? But then, of course, there's lots of cases of people who feel very lonely lying right next to their spouse in bed. So it's a very difficult concept to define. Do you have some idea how one would go about
1: that? It's extremely difficult. And and there's a like a glossary in the Surgeon General's report of, I don't know, 30 terms or something that they try to use to distinguish different types of this thing. So I can read a couple of them. So they define loneliness, a subjective, distressing experience that results from perceived isolation or inadequate meaningful connections where inadequate refers to the discrepancy or unmet need between an individual's preferred and actual experience. So the main thing that they're paying attention to is not the actual nature of like how many people are around you, but the difference between your expectational set and the things that are happening to you, which I actually, I think that framework is actually pretty helpful. They then have a whole bunch of other terms that they want to like contrast this with. So social isolation is one of one of them, object which they define as objectively having few social relationships, social roles, group memberships, and infrequent social interaction. So you could be socially isolated and presumably not lonely. And I think that's where the... The hermit case is actually a very interesting one where someone decides to have very few social interactions and they think that itself is a key to their flourishing. And I do think that there are real instances of that and important ones. I, I, one of my real areas of interest and kind of academic focus has been on the late antique philosophical schools and the ways in which they operate. And almost all of them have a kind of ascetic set that they recommend, including things like social isolation. So they say to live a good life, you actually should have fewer interactions with other people in certain kinds of ways. And I do think there's something about that structure that is, is quite insightful in certain places. So yeah, we're talking about something complicated.
0: Yeah. So there's this fantastic film called the Banshee of Invashi. and it starts off with these two friends who live in this very beautiful place in Ireland, and they've been friends for years, and every day they go out for lunch and they have a beer. And the one friend goes to visit the other, and he's not there. And he's surprised by this and heads to the pub and sees his friend. His friend refuses to speak to him. And at some point says to him, we can no longer be friends. And he doesn't give a good reason. This is not perceived as a good reason. And eventually he says, look, I only have so many more years left on this earth, and I'm wasting them in your company. And he goes to such lengths to end this friendship The lengths include removing a finger, which he throws at his ex-friend to say, I'll cut off the others if you continue to persist in trying to make me your friend. And he winds up removing all of his fingers to end this friendship. And there's a sense in which he was lonely in the relationship, right? That he wasn't with someone who was an intellectual peer, who he could really share the meaningful things in his life with, and that really on his own, he could contemplate his plan is to compose wonderful music, and seek that. And in that sense, you seek social isolation in order not to be alone. And I think distinguishing those things is quite useful. I also wonder about the nature of friendship. So it seems like there are different kinds of friends that you can have. And I often think that one way to make friendships be successful is to recognize their limitations. I often think about friends as different kinds of foods. So some are like a morning cup of coffee. You can have them every single day and you'll never get sick of them. Others are like creme brulee. They're wonderful when you have them, but if you have it every single day, you're going to get sick. Some people are like cyanide. You have them once and they'll kill you. But if you have a sense of what the other person's capabilities are and what the nature of that friendship is, you can then build something quite beautiful together. I also wonder if the nature of friendship is such that it, it can bring out the virtuous side in you and it can, you can have a sparring partner, you can engage in ideas, you can build lives together But maybe it can also make you do bad things because you have this friend, you could be loyal to them and you might back their decisions that are bad for them or bad for others. People often notoriously will pick the side of their friend over their ex-lover or something or over their employers. Even if the friend did a bad thing, they feel it's my friend and I should back them. And so maybe friendship has a vicious character too.
1: Yeah, I think, so I tend to think that, first of all, I want to say, so I haven't seen that film. I did read this. Possibly says something about my my internet habits. I did find an article that was so. What's the title of the film? The Banshees of Vinasharan. Yes. So I did, yeah, I did find an article that was entitled "The Sweaters of Vinasharan," which was all about the kind of fine knitwear that that happened to go along with this film. And I don't know if that correlates with friendship, but it does seem. It does see. It it was a fi- it was a fine there were fine photographic examples within the article. So I guess what I would say is I think that both of the points that you make. I would strongly agree with, and that they, I think, arise from a basic premise that I would want to be arguing, which is just that this domain of things, whatever it is for humans to be social, is very important. So I again, I think that you can contrast this. I would contrast my view with with Hob, Hobbes' view, which seems to be, and I, in certain ways Rousseau also seems like this, which seems to be something like whatever you need to pay attention to the first unit is the individual and the individual is separable and div- divisible in every case when you look at them and that, that then goes, so that that's point, that's premise one premise two, I think is then he thinks individuals are therefore self-interested. So they will be pursuing their own individual goods and th- that then the task of society is somehow to coordinate the worst effects of everyone pursuing their individual goods independently and make sure that this doesn't become like wildly destructive in all kinds of respects, right? This is one version of a political philosophy. I think that analytically, I would want to contend against this on a couple of grounds. The first is descriptive, and that's what we've been talking about. I don't actually think that's how humans work. I think that there are moments where humans are quite self-interested. I also think that there are yeah, and have some of and those self interested moments do have some of the effects that Hobbes I think describes. There are though also many moments where humans are engaged in something that I think doesn't fit Hobbes' descriptive set, which is like what I would call like a kind of synchrony, like things that humans do together which are not individual against individual. And examples of this, playing sports, are I think like an interesting one where you have a group of people who are coordinating in a particular way. And there is a competitive aspect here. So that fits Hobbes' set, but the units of competition are like entire groups of things coming in, clashing with one another in a certain way. And it takes time and it's difficult to be able to gain that kind of coordination, but it is really amazing when it's achieved. I think an- another is like how music works, the way in which you can be caught up into collective experience at a rock concert or like a production of Chopin. Like these are collective things that sweep across Across the whole audience, people seem to be doing something together in a way that the lines between how how your consciousness ends up in this state are not totally obvious. And then I think larger units of things, friendships can take on this level where you don't quite remember which thing did you say and which thing did I say. There are just weird, totally implicit sort of cues or habits that you both Participate in, but you don't remember how they came about, and they're no longer conscious decisions. I think those kinds of things are really intriguing, and then they, I think they also show up at a societal level. So the kinds of societal habits that the that like a modern established democracy has is like wildly different than the set of habits that people coming out of the Soviet bloc had, and that is consequential in lots of actual practical moments. Like the habits that a society displays are going to have. Important implications. I'm also saying a lot of this because I know that Jason takes a very strong view against there being social entities. And it seems like it's useful for us to talk about that a little bit while we're at this.
2: I'm really glad you brought it up. So, since you gave your initial thought experiment, I've been dying to raise a a certain metaphysical distinction. Okay. So, let's take this initial case. So, the initial case you give is the soldier who is banished or at least initially banished and made stateless, removed. his his citizenship is removed. We might think about our relationships with social entities and our relationships with individuals within those social entities. And I think those are very different. So all the claims you're making about it's very important that we relate with other human beings, that we relate with other individuals. If you're thinking about them as individuals, I'm on board. I'm on board. I agree. I don't like to be isolated. I don't want to be put into a into, into solitary confinement. I agree. I want to chat with Mark and I want to see people for board games and I want to see friends and family. Great. Okay. But I don't know what it means to have a relationship with a social entity. That's where I get off board. So to me, if I was banished from my state, from my country, and was stateless, that in itself would be not a problem at all. I don't mind that at all that I see there's no torture involved, there's no negativity involved at all. The only negative consequences that ensue are in my individual relationships with people. So if I now can't live in my home where I would normally host my friends for parties, if I can't go out and play table tennis at my table tennis club, if I, in other words, the only actual causal mechanisms involved Involve other human beings interacting with me, other individuals, but not some social entity. I have no idea what it would mean to have a certain relationship with a state. What would that mean? The state would have to have a mind. I'd have to chat with it. That mind would have to have beliefs. That mind would have to have desires. You can't have a relationship with something that's not an agent with a mind. You can't have a relationship, for example, with a pen. But we don't think of collections of individuals as having minds. So I can get on board with you when you say that a human being needs other human beings to be a full human being, both metaphysically and ethically. I get it. I get it. I've got some qualms because of the hermit case, but they're minor. I can buy it. It's when you start talking about humans are intrinsically social. If you're cashing that out as anything but human beings intrinsically are humans by interacting with other individual humans, that's fine.
1: But if it's anything more than that, then I'm off board. So I think Ark pushed at this a little bit earlier, the way in which you can have very different, like variegated types of social interaction. And they all, in my view, fit the word social, but in not in the same way as the paradigm case that you're describing, which is one to one individual to individual interaction. So I think when I go read a post online that's about sweaters, there is a kind of sociality that's happening there. Possibly it's still an individual to individual sociality like where the author and I are engaged in some kind of some kind of interaction that's like analogous to the friendship relationship that we're describing. Though I think that there are a lot of other things that are happening there. Like they didn't actually write that for me. They wrote it for the crowd or something or tw- or for Twitter maybe. And like it's calibrated for a larger social set and social community. And so I guess what I would say is that the dynamics that you get in sociality in human sociality can take many different forms and levels and some of them Have this like direct person to person interpersonal intimacy component. And I really like those. Those are the ones that I'm actually most interested in and find that's what I've dedicated a lot of my academic work to. I find them really attractive as like things to explore and understand and have a depth to them. But I also do think that there are many other features of human sociality. One, I wouldn't go like very strongly in the direction that Wittgenstein goes, but I do think. There are aspects of this idea that you couldn't have a language of your own that seem interesting and important to explore. So if we take our moon AI hermit case, I think over one generation, you can sustain that if that person is able to reproduce and you have a sort of like succession of individuals who have never, they reproduce and then they no longer have interaction with the prior individual of any kind and then, but are raised by AI over I think 40 generations, it would be very hard to understand how any like current modern, like if you go back, like if you take humans now and go back 40 generations, I think you can very plausibly see us interacting with some confusing things, but like basically in a way that will become explicable quickly. I think if you do that the other direction, as I'm suggesting, I think it would become very difficult to find ourselves as like in the same community as that 40, 40th generation out out entity.
2: So I want to push you on that. Okay. So the first issue you raised, now my mind's just gone blank. So our That's editor's gonna to have to edit this up. But <laughs> yeah, the first issue you raised was, oh yes, the one too many case. So writing an article for Twitter, for example. So I'm not denying that you could communicate with a number of individuals simultaneously, right? I don't deny that. Not all communication is one-to-one. It could be one-to-many. But what I'm saying is that when you say many, are you talking about many as a single entity? Or are you talking about many as a whole lot of individual entities? And I'm saying that you're very quickly moving between the two phrases between the two senses, and there's an error in one and not in the other. So I'm saying that if that writer wrote that for the Twitter community, that's just shorthand for wrote that for anyone in, who's, re, who's on Twitter, who would be interested in the movie or interested in sweaters or some combination of descriptions. And anyone who fits that bill is the person they're communicating with. But that doesn't mean there's some entity of people. Some collection which has a mind that's interested in the movie and interested in, tw- in in sweaters. No, I don't believe in group minds. There's a whole lot of individuals that are interested. And yes, that person is is communicating with a number of individuals. So that's the first objection. The second objection is around language, and I think that's a great case. So how is it possible for language to exist? if humans are not inherently social. And by the way, that was the whole thrust of Davidson's Swamp Man example. So that's exactly his view. He agrees with you. So his view is that the Swamp Man wouldn't actually have language. I might have really butchered this, and this wasn't Davidson's thought experiment. It might be someone else's. But let's just say it was Davidson's. Okay, so Davidson would agree with you. He'd say humans can't have language without... A sociality around them. I just think that Davidson existed in a prior time when sci-fi wasn't as as imaginative. <laughs> um, and so the moon, I'm now going to give you spoilers to moon because moon is really trying to give a cult example to your position. So in moon, what happens is there's this guy who remembers being on earth and being flown up to, to the moon to man a station alone. Okay. And and his job basically is to keep the station running on a day to day basis. And he knows that his contract is going to expire in like a year. So for the next year, he's up there alone. He's got like an AI assistant, it's like a robot, and he's going about his work on a day to day basis. What he finds is over the course of this year, he develops more and more illnesses. So, like, he gets sicker and sicker, which is totally to be expected. Apparently, there's lots of radiation on the moon. So, you know, it's to be expected. But after a year, he's in a really bad state. And they keep saying to him, look, it's just a few more months now. It's just a few more weeks and just a few more days. And we're going to come collect you, take you back to earth. It's the end of your contract. And then what he discovers just before it's time for his contract to end is a whole lot of other bodies buried under the floorboard that look just like him. And what is happening is that he never lived on earth. He has the memories of someone else and he's a clone. And at the end of that year, the clone dies and another one is born who mans the station for a year and then is killed at the end of that year, deteriorates because the clone is built in with built-in redundancy and after a year, the clone dies. But the point is this, that whole year, he's having chats, right? He's chatting with AI. He seems to have language. So there seems to be, it seems to at least be metaphysically possible to have language with no sociality around you. So yeah, those are my two objections.
1: Yeah, let's take the first one first. So actually, I want to ask you so is so your view, the view you want to argue is that metaphysically there are only always individuals. Does that also on on your view, how do you deal with like emergent social effects? So I think a good example would be a mob. A mob seems like something that a person might instigate somewhere, but then swiftly takes on emergent dynamics that you would not get under lots of people in cubicles working their own individual pra- practice practical tasks for the day, right? How, how do you deal with those kinds of examples? So I, I think it's a great question and
2: it's actually at the core of my PhD thesis. So I start with a case of a mob. So my initial opening case is if there was ever a case of a social group, it seems to be a mob. And the case I give is a protest that happened at my university, the University of the Witwatersrand at Wits. And at Wits, we had these protesting students who wanted fees to be reduced. And they were chanting in unison. And it seemed if ever there was a case of a collective, it was this, right? And the question I opened with was, how can we explain that away? one, One way of doing that is by asking, so in virtue of what do you think all these individuals are members of a mob? And it's so hard to answer that question. So that's the first, that's the first line of inquiry. Is in, it appears to be a mob, but, but let's put that appearance aside for a moment. In virtue of what principle unifies these individuals as members? And I don't think there's a good answer. The second line of inquiry is to say, okay, let's sit down with each of these in, individuals in this mob when they go home later that day. And interview them and say, so what were you doing there today? What exactly were you fighting for? And our brains are designed to unify motivations. So we think that everyone in that mob has the same motivation. They're fighting for fees to fall. As I said earlier, the mob is fighting for fees to fall. But actually, when you ask all those individuals, they have radically different reasons for being there. For the one, they have no idea what the protest is about. He's just there because his friend's there. Another one is there because they have free drinks. Another one is there because he really likes singing. And and then you come across the people who really do want fees to fall and you ask them, okay, so what does that mean to you? Do you want fees to fall completely? Do you want free education? Do you want people to pay a percentage? Who should have it? And they'll have very different views. So this apparent unification, this apparent mobness that we see in the first place, I don't think is there. I think it's a delusion but it's a delusion that our brains are programmed to perceive. So as humans, there's huge evolutionary advantages to seeing patterns, to combining, into combining people into asses and them's and selves and others and unifying those others. So those are the sort of approaches. And then the final point I just want to make is it's entirely logically possible to have the very same set of individuals chanting in those ways and for them to be zombies with no awareness of each other. It could just be that each of those individual zombies happens. It's logically possible that in that moment, each of those individual zombies is chanting the songs in the same ways that in the case of non-zombies they are. It's logically possible. So this is Searle's case. So Searle says, it's entirely possible for them all to be zombies, for them all to be individuals and not zombies with no conception of the other zombies, all individuals in their own heads. And so with those three lines of argument, that's how I deal with
1: it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Mark, how much do those intuitions like, resonate with you?
0: Yeah, so I think there are probably ways in which you can redescribe the phenomenon using different kinds of language. I actually think you're getting at something different. The way that you have set up the emergence of a mob is that if you had all these individuals on their own, that they wouldn't do the wild thing like burn down. They wouldn't storm the Capitol building on their own. It is the fact that they are surrounded by other individuals that this behavior is brought out. And so Jason can just say that's individuals who influence each other and calling it a mob is just a useful shorthand. Maybe he's going to say it's a bad shorthand. But it is an important thing to point out that individuals can influence each other in this way that appears coordinated and social, even if it's not really the case. As Jason will say, the people you know invading the Capitol building did it for all sorts of different reasons. And you might think that they're less unified than they appear. But there is this danger in the social. And so this is something that I worry about. That if the claim is that it's good for people to be social, it's in their nature to interact with others. I think the bits that all of us are going to find alarming about human nature is when people do group up together. And that's when you start to get a little bit worried. It's you can't do these great things on your own. And sometimes you can't do really awful things on your own. You require the mob to do it. And so we we should maybe have some reluctance about the social part of humanity. That vast political projects, totalitarian projects, require this obedience to the group, the sense of we're all in it together and you need to believe our norms and individualism must be stamped out because it's for the good of all of us, for the polis, that you must abide by these principles. And that's why no one can own property or why this cancerous group of people needs to be eradicated so that the rest of us can thrive or the body can survive. Those are not things that individuals can do on their own. And you might think that hermits are smelly and not the nicest bunch. But they're not putting people in gas chamber. They're sticking to their own. they're reading their books. they're being pious on a mountaintop. It's the groups that we have to be worried about,
1: yeah, so let me now respond to that. so i I think that Mark, what you're saying is pretty close to the kind of thing that I would want to pay attention to. I think that the I think the claim that I would want to make is that when we're talking about the kind of individual that humans are, we need reference to a framework that is, com- is sufficiently complex to take account of the phenomena that we actually observe. And in this case, so, I and I think we do this, so to take a, like a weak case, I don't know if you can see this brick building behind me, but it's a big red brick, whatever. Bricks are on the one hand individuals, like they have, like even this one, you could go smash it apart and go take some out and like it would still be an individual again, you could look around, but what it was made for and how it actually operates is to be coordinated with all kinds of other things, with mortar, with a bunch of other bricks, with other building materials, with whatever we wanna say. And I think that there are a lot of entities that work like that where they are both individual in in, in an important respect and probably don't ever lose that individuality. They maintain a kind of autonomy that can, even if it gets integrated with other things, can still be pulled back out and you can look at that autonomy and have it still fully fledged in that way but that they also are not fully definable without reference to that further thing that they need. And so that's basically the claim that I would make about human beings, that when you look at human beings, we do have a very strong individual status that can be pretty robust and pulled out in certain ways. Though I do actually, I do still want to talk about the solitary confinement thing. So let me come back to that in just a second. And also, so you have this individual status, and also that individual status has this potential to be swept up into all kinds of things that are not just purely individualistic in that way. So you have sociality that can get activated in exactly the ways that Mark is talking about, like invading the capital or going to a rock concert, like positive or negative. The normative claim that I would want to make from that analysis is that if human sociality is as important definitionally as we're making it, it's also important as a matter of, like, a light obligation, especially for political philosophy, to figure out a good version of that thing. So it's not that you want to say, okay, human sociality is the negative trait that we need to make sure we, we ring fence and isolate and make sure that we don't let that into our politics. I would want to make the other claim, which is human sociality just is what the po- politics is. Like that is going to be a, perhaps the principal strong driver of our political community. And if that's the case, we should do it well rather than poorly. And you can definitely do it poorly, but there are also ways to do it. As soon as you get into that, I think that the question of how you might do that is hard. I mean, I d- this is like one of the hardest features of political philosophy in general, I think, is this particular question. Like, how would you do something with such potent force to it and do that in a good version instead of a bad one? So that's what I would say. Let me just say something about the um, solitary confinement, because I think, because I do think it's really helpful in in terms of understanding what's going on. We have these case studies now of these analysis of what actually happens to a person who ends up in solitary confinement, and they are very harrowing. There is a philosopher that, that uh, I know at Harvard called Ian Corbin, who has done some nice work on this recently, but there's also a number of empirical stuff on it. And essentially what we see is that after people are in solitary confinement for a certain amount of time, they start to lose things that we think are attributable to like f- full autonomy or individuality. And one of, one of the ones that's most striking is the capacity for perception. So, you'll if you have left someone in solitary confinement for long enough, they will at a certain point not any longer be able to perceive their environment. They'll think the walls are like fluid. They don't know that they're still fixed entities that are like st- structured around them. We have cases where someone will stab themselves and they won't know that the arm that they stabbed is their own. They don't experience it as their own body. And these seem to be things that have to do with the way in which our individual consciousness, even for someone who had been fully formed, this is not the Feral case that we talked about earlier, but someone who had been fully formed in a political community with other human beings going like up through their childhood that they end up in a solitary confinement. And I can't remember exactly the time span, but it's often much shorter than you think. Maybe between five and 30 days, you'll start getting some of these effects and then they'll just gradually amplify over time. And it seems to me that kind of thing is pretty strong confirmation for the degree to which when we're paying attention to what is a human being, you do have to go down to sociality as like a very essential feature.
2: Don't you think there's a difference, though, between asking the question, what is a human being and what makes a human being happy or what makes a human being function okay? So, so we wouldn't want to say, for example, that a human being is essentially oxygen, right? We wouldn't want to say that, but you remove that oxygen from that human, they're not going to do well, okay? Yeah. So yeah. I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say that you're trying to bring something that's outside of human beings into their nature, but it's distinct from them, and you're disagreeing with that. I think you're saying that. I think I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but now, how do you deal with the oxygen case, right? So oxygen, will you agree, oxygen is not part of human beings' nature. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, but so it's that's outside, this is like right? a
1: back, this is like a background like a. I wonder if oxygen even makes the standard of a necessary condition. But I think.
2: It's, a, I yeah, mean, it, it seems these are no. back,
1: these are background conditions, right? Rather than yeah, this, exactly. Exactly. Like
2: so I want to say okay I'm on board a background condition for a human being being happy is that there's other human beings around they're not stuck in a room completely alone fine they haven't they're not in solitude I get it and I agree but that's all outside of a human that's not inside
1: so how what are the things that you would want to identify with a definitional set that would require that would mean that someone is a human being
2: Okay so I'd first want to distinguish between a human and a person So I'd want to say that a human is just, it's just a creature with a set of genes, a certain set of genes. That's it. That's what makes you a human. Nothing else. A person, a person, the definition of a person is complicated. So we had a guest on our show that is Matt who'd agree with something like what you're saying. He says he's pushing an Ubuntu view of personhood. And the Ubuntu view of personhood is something like a person is a person through other persons. So built into the definition of a person is that they must relate to other persons in a certain way. And I think he'd agree with a lot of what you're saying, but it seems conceivable to me to have a person that's never met another person. That seems conceivable to me. And that is also one of my opening thought experiments in my PhD is imagine a Martian that's lived its entire existence alone. That Martian comes down to earth, that Martian sees a wealth of individuals and happens to land its spacecraft right next to the mob and now wants to understand what's going on. And all the Martian can understand is all these other individuals can't understand the sociality. And it seems like this thought experiment is, sure, there aren't Martians, I get it, but it seems at least logically possible that there is this person that can communicate with us, can learn our language, and has never been in contact with another person. Still seems like a
1: person. Yeah. So I think, yeah, this is where like I would want to defer again back to this idea that you do need a framework, a definitional framework for human beings that's both referential to their to a an entry state condition. Like I so I, I think to take some of what you're saying and make it more tangible, I think that one place where this stuff really matters is around disability. So the question of how much Someone is actually exercising their capacity for sociality, or in fact, mean especially if you have someone like in a coma, not just like someone who has, say, like a muted capacity for sociality, but say, someone in a coma. Is that person still a person? And I think I would want to make a strong claim of yes in that case. That this is not condition which disallows them from being a member of the species. I think that you also want to say it would be better if that person were not in a coma and were able to relate to other people. And so I think what you want is a framework where you can do both of those things simultaneously without having to oscillate between them. And so I I think to agree with you, I think that you can make big missteps in a kind of, I guess you could have a strong social ontology view where there's no such thing as individuals except for referential or perhaps not even Then the only thing is the collective and these other things are just parts um, and maybe not even separable parts of any kind, like that they are totally immersed within this. I do think that there is a, a significant way in which you need some reference to individuality and to autonomy. That's why I think the Hermit case, like actually, like I'm pretty comfortable with it, that there's a way that you could say not just a human life, but a flourishing human life can actually decide intentionally to not be... In like ongoing daily act with with other human beings, that's that seems fine to me. But I do think it's very hard to understand the like even just like currently analyzing human beings, much less the sort of like socio political history of our species without realizing, gosh, like whatever as as Mark said, whatever this area is, it's really potent. Like what could make you go storm the capital? What is it that like? is able to draw you into these kinds of dynamics. So importantly, like it's very hard to understand what we are, I think in any kind of an empirical way without saying, gosh, like sociality really matters to, to us.
2: Yeah, I think if you perceiving social phenomena, it's very hard to explain them individualistically. So if you perceive a mob storming the capital, and you say to me, okay, Jason, now explain that. And, I, and if I accept your initial observation of a mob is storming the Capitol, it's going to be nearly impossible for me to do that. But I deny the observation. So I don't think a mob stormed the Capitol. I think this individual went into that room. That individual went into that room. That individual raised a spear. That individual pushed someone. And when you describe it that way, then there's nothing to explain. Yeah, there were a whole lot of individuals that did these things. But you would want there to be a causal connection, right? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's looking at everyone else. Everyone's chatting. Someone hears something on the radio. Someone's off their meds that day. Each individual has their own explanations for being in that room. And when you start to think about that, if you have the social explanation, which is your preferred explanation, which is there's a mob that stormed the Capitol, you miss out on all of that fine-grained information. You miss out on the fact that the guy didn't take his meds that day. You miss out on the fact that Someone just wanted to enter the Oval Office. That's what he wanted to do, right? He just wanted to stand in that room or he just wanted to (laughs) sit in that chair or whatever it is. When you give the social explanation, it's very satisfying to us as humans because we love these kind of broad strokes, high-level explanations for things because they're so simple. You can take all of that complexity that's involved in each individual's actions and just summarize it as they were part of one mind they performed a collective action they did this but the reality is so much more complicated there's all these individuals that acted very differently that and you can't explain those individuals individual actions being different without referencing them as individuals
1: so actually the discipline that i think that is the the most egregious offender here in terms of what doing what you're critiquing is economics so i think that the level of abstraction with which Economic theory tends to work is wildly disrespectful to the kind of the level of phenomena that you're talking about and describing, and should not be. I think it would be a significantly better discipline if it were able to do the kind of fine grained description that you're describing. So, like, I very much agree with that. I think that for me, the kind of explanatory set of tools that I want to have is able to shuffle into both of these into these different levels in a way that I can say okay at this level of analysis here are some weak things that we can perceive that do seem to work in these kinds of ways and then we can also come down a couple of levels to individual individuality and how that's operating i think though that the strong i think probably where you and i disagree is that i think at the level of individuals it's impossible to define them non-socially so it's actually when you talk about what a human being is it already has this doorway upward into these other levels because the potential or the features of human life that correspond with sociality are so important to how we then actual- actualize our lives in various ways.